0: Some of you have been wondering, what in the world am I going to be talking about tonight on processing ghosts from the past? Well, have you ever seen the Christmas carol? There were three ghosts. All three of them are coming tonight wherever you're staying because you came to this presentation. No. No, actually what I'm going to do, and Ethan Bilbury called me out on this. I did, I, it was Ethan who said this. He said, I needed to do a seance and call out all of the ghosts from the past from this church. So turn out the lights. I'm going to get a Ouija board. and here we, No, 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 no. No. <clears throat> That was supposed to be funny. I hope you caught that. I'm really not going to do that. We don't teach seance, you know, conduction that, uh, I don't even, hold on, we don't do that. Uh, <laughs> what do we mean by this? What, well, let me ask you this. How many of you are members of a church where something happened 25 years ago that's supposed to be all solved and settled, but still comes up when you try to make decisions. Raise your hand. Now look around. Hold them up, hold them up. Look around here. Look around here. All right? That's a ghost. It's a ghost. That's what I mean by a ghost. Congregational ghost. And, man, isn't it true? I mean, you go into churches sometimes... And folks over there in that diagonal of the auditorium point to people over here at this diagonal of the auditorium and say, "1978, 2002." I can remember it now, like it's yesterday. You know what they did, preacher? Now, preacher, I don't want—I don't want to badmouth anybody here at this church. All right. But now you're you're new here and you need to know a little bit of the congregational history. I mean, that isn't that good pastoral practice. You need to know history. Now there are some of these people you only know a little bit about them. Let me tell you the real story. There's not a preacher around who hasn't dealt with that, right? where no matter how hard you want to just get to know the people on your own, you can't because you get jaded by stories of the past and that kind of thing. So how do you know if you have a ghost or ghosts, plural? Well, here are a few things that help you to know whether you have a ghost or ghosts. Um... If there is a story about something that happened several years ago that has made it to where it's kind of brought up but kind of not, but at about the time it's brought up in a Sunday school class or in some kind of group meeting or wherever, they say, we don't go there. We we don't go there. We don't talk about that. Now, y'all remember what happened. And it's insider language, right? And everyone sort of knows we don't talk about that. Or how about if Jim Bob and Joe Frank work on that project together? Uh no, wait just a minute. Jim Bob and Bob Frank. Did I get to, did I remember the names right? <laughs> it's Joe Frank. Um let's let's just say it's better that th- we not put them together. Okay. Or how about if we let Fred Joe teach this class. No, no, wait a minute. It was about wasn't too long ago, about twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, he taught a class where he stirred up the people here and they I mean, there's some folks just gonna get up and walk out if he stands up to teach that class. Well well who? Well, just some of our people. Uh, who? How many? What well, just some. It's, it's actually this elder's wife that I'm talking to. Okay, all right. Or or the elder who's and the wife is talking to me. Right. I mean, those are ghosts. Um, and all churches have them, and they need to be dealt with if they constantly visit you and impede missional progress. That's when you know they need to be dealt with, one way or the other. I mean, you know, one philosophy says, just let sleeping dogs lie. Just don't go there. Don't try to open up old wounds. I understand that. And there's wisdom there, isn't there? There's some wisdom in the idea of not opening up old wounds. There are some things that, I mean, I'm a conflict guy. I teach conflict. I've worked with churches with conflict, and I... I don't, you know, I, early on when I started teaching this subject, I don't think I ever would have caught myself saying this, but I'll say it now. I mean, I'm old enough now that I've just seen some things. There's some things just, you just don't need to try to mess with them. Just avoid them, deal with them, and it is, just let it go long enough and it'll go away. Some things will. Some things just need to be Overlooked. Uh, you know, some things, the memory of them is so altered that to try to go back, you can't. Or maybe the key players in what happened are not there enough to be able to get any semblance of truth as to what occurred. And, you know, to try to open it up is fruitless. But if, on the other hand, you really do have... You know, the opportunity because the people are there, the circumstances are, you know, fresh even though they happened 15 years ago. Sometimes those kinds of things need to be dealt with. Not all the time. I will tell you that in a gathering like this, this is the first time I've ever addressed this issue. In a gathering like this, I've addressed it in classes when I've been teaching a lot of principles and practices before it and after it. And, you know, then this kind of fits in as a component. All right, you you follow me there? And so, I mean, there's a doctoral class I taught, and I'm guessing it's from that class and maybe Scott Laird sitting in that class called Managing Conflict, Change, and Crisis that he got to thinking about, you know, we might get Carlos to deal with that. I don't know exactly where it came from. Or, but you need to understand that normally when I teach this, there's a lot that precedes it. Lots of reading, lots of research, lots of teaching, and then there's a lot that follows it. Okay. And even then, I'm leery of saying to those people, Go ye therefore, and cast out ghosts. You know, I, I, it's, even then, I'm hesitant to say this, because this is, this is hard work. And if you don't know what you're doing, man, you, you, you better be careful. So what would be the purpose of a presentation like this? I think it's to let you know that there is literature out there, and that there are principles out there of actually dealing with this, that you actually do. It can and should, at times, do this. Uh, let me give you a, a little bit of history in my, my own work on this that sort of awakened me to it, other than reading the book from which I'm taking most of the ideas in this outline that I'll get to here in just a moment. I remember several years ago, when I began to be interested in the field of conflict management, I studied under sort of the grandfather of church consultants in Protestantism, a fellow named John Savage. Some of you may have heard of Listening Laboratory 1, Listening Laboratory 2. If you did ministry back in the 80s, particularly in the 70s, it was a real popular program. He was the originator of those programs. Those were sort of his flagship uh, products as a church consultant. But he also had another uh, consulting package, and I trained under him with this, called... Conflict Management and the Resolution of Corporate Pain. An interesting concept, right? He's a trained psychotherapist who then turned church consultant, a United Methodist minister. That was sort of his background. And one of the things he talked about is how that sometimes when you go into a church that is severely conflicted, you have to deal with what he called this was his term for it. You know, I'm not saying this is a great term for it, but his term for it was unresolved past trauma. Unresolved past trauma. And he said sometimes what happens with that stuff is it is buried alive. But it doesn't die. He says it becomes geological. And I've used it from that point. Now, now, some of you can just blow me out of the water and understanding this stuff a whole lot better than I. I understand there's some volcanoes around here. Um, <clears throat> and some of you maybe even trained volcanologists. Is that what they call them, volcanologists? Okay, all right. It almost sounds like a Vulcan with pointed ears or something, but anybody who would want to be a volcanologist probably is from Vulcan and has point. No, no. Um, no, I, I, that's probably pretty fascinating. Anyway, I'll stop. All right, now here's the idea. It's my understanding that when you have an eruption sometimes and then you have this crust that grows over where the eruption, where the lava flow has been, that at times there is still a flow underneath all that, and it can be pretty deep, right? Right? Sometimes all it takes is a tremor that's significant enough to open up a little fissure and it starts coming out again, right? That's what I mean by geological. And that's why sometimes something can happen like, I don't know what happened. You know, our youth minister had been here for four or five years and, you know, he went off with some other woman and... We had to fire him. I mean, obviously we had to fire him, and it seems like everybody ought to know we got to fire him for doing what he did. And, you know, but man, you think that just with that incident that all the parents even wanted, but then it's like, man, every issue this church has ever dealt with just started erupting all at once. Are you following me? What's happening is there, the pain from past events that was unresolved has been flowing underneath, and what was the tremor that opened up the fissure? The firing of the youth minister and his unfaithfulness. Are you with me? Completely unrelated to any of the unresolved past trauma. But still enough that it came up again. All right? That lets you know, by the way, you've got a ghost. If it comes up again, now, by the way, that's part of the reason why John Savage always says, uh, or he said when he was still doing this, that one of the things you got to do at times like that is you just got to go into deep pastoral listening. and you, and and you have to really listen to the story behind the story, behind the story, behind the story, because you might think everybody's just upset over the youth ministry. When in reality, what's, what that's doing is it's, it's causing people to bring up the unresolved past trauma. Now, many of us know that, some of you know, exactly what I'm talking about because you may have suffered or had friends who suffered from PTSD, It's the same kind of principle, but different, all right? Now, another way that I've heard it expressed, for many years, the Mennonite Conciliation Service that was at the time headquartered at Lombard, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, they did tons of work and produced lots of resources on religious conflict management. If you know anything about the Mennonites, peacemaking is huge for them. Uh, Eastern Mennonite University over in Harrisonburg, uh, Virginia. I think I'm getting that right in terms of the actual location. Uh, they had for many years, and I think they still do, a summer peace-building institute where you can go and study peace-building with them. And when they say peace-building, they mean going all over the world where there's significant conflict and helping to create peace in large communities and sometimes all you know, full countries with this. So I've had a lot of respect for a lot of material that they have produced. In fact, for a number of years... In graduate circles, particularly, one of the the major textbooks that you would use was the MCS Conciliation Manual, the Mennonite Conciliation Service Conciliation Manual that was a huge collection of incredible resources along these lines. So having a lot of usefulness for that information, they used to have a training. I never was really able to go to it. I wish I could have. But in that training, they had this notion of what they called... Ancestral sin. Okay, now stop here for just a moment. I'm not saying that if my granddaddy sinned that I'm going to be the one who bears the punishment. I'm not trying to say that at all. Here's the way they meant that term. The way they meant the term was that there was a set of misdeeds done many years ago by people within the church, that set in motion a congregational culture. And uh, about the only way that culture can be dealt with is by going back and understanding what happened then and repenting of that to the extent that that can be done and then moving forward. Are you with me? That's what they call ancestral sin. There was a a university, I know, that recognized that they had a part of their past that was deeply racially divided. And there were many people who had been hurt by that. Many African Americans who had been hurt by the decision, who were still living, but it had been hurt by the decisions that this school had made about their admissions policies, about even after they admitted them, about the way that people of other races and colors were treated. And this school went about to go through a process of saying publicly, we are sorry for what we did. And it wasn't these people who actually did it. Are you following me? It was 25 or 30 years ago that it happened, but they recognized it in the language of the Mennonites. I mean, I, I realize language, you know, can help us and sometimes not, but that, that's what the, the, the MCS group would call ancestral sin, right? That can be a ghost too. So, it, it isn't as if we can just say, oh, this is the kind of thing that seminary people talk about when they don't have anything else to write about and they got to have something to publish. No, I've never published this, never planned to. Um, but, and, and to be honest, I've, like I said, I've never presented on it. Outside of a class, I've never said anything about it. So, all of that being said, I want to make sure you understand that this is not one of those workshops that after you hear me, that you become a weekend wonder certified exerciser of ghosts. Okay? Please don't do that. Who don't do that? And if you do anything that has been talked about tonight from this outline, then you, 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 you got it from Scott Lucasen. I knew I could pick on Scott and he'd laugh, okay. Uh, (laughs) No, it's my way of saying, you know, don't, don't take this and think, okay, I can do it now. This is insight. It's just insight. That's what this is intended to do. It's intended to at least raise your awareness that there is good practice out there. Relative to this. Now, what I've done in this outline is I I really did just extract a piece from one of my course outlines and rearrange it a little bit and plop it into the this handout. I mean, that's that's really all I did. And it comes from my adaptation of some sections of a book by Denise Goodman entitled Congregational Fitness. Uh, she wrote the book uh, when, under the Alvin Institute publication, which is now Roman and Littlefield. And if you'll see there on page one, I've indicated this. This is an adaptation of Denise Goodman's Congregational Fitness. This is not my material. I'm borrowing it directly from her. I mean, this this comes directly from her. And having had the introduction that we've talked about up to this point, I'd like for you to go with me to page three, because that's where I'll sort of land for right now. The whole outline here is very useful. Um, But you see where she starts there on page three with number three called Beware of Platitudes. Now, I'm going to be reading and talking, reading and commenting. So follow along with me here. You can read with me. It's just right there, all right? She says there is a variation of what she calls the no-talk rule. That can even be applied after a conflict is acknowledged. She says the two most frequent forms are, let's just forgive and forget. Or, we have to, all put, this, we have to put this all behind us. She says, just as denial is an unhealthy way to deal with the reality of conflict, so too is the subsequent premature admonition to forgive and forget after the conflict has been acknowledged. She says, when we insist on premature closure... Of a painful episode, we fail to learn the lessons that the episode provided, and we may re-victimize the victims. Have a friend who works um, with—he works with churches that have been traumatized by sexual predators. He himself has a really interesting history along these lines, not having been a predator but having had one of his relatives who was a predator. And it ended up that it came out and he was so impacted by everything that had gone on that he realized churches need to be equipped with this. And this is one of the things he talks about. How quickly, when some of that kind of thing happens, how quickly churches want to just, sometimes out of shame, sometimes out of a variety of things, want to just... Take care of it as, as, as quickly as we possibly can. And it's dealt with and closed so prematurely that it is not adequately dealt with. Now, some of you in here are therapists. Any therapist in here? We realize from the standpoint of life trauma how that you really can't do that. You really can't do that. She continues. I'm there in the second paragraph now. She says, certainly there comes a time when a congregation must put the conflict on the shelf. I use the term on the shelf because both forgetting and putting it behind us suggest that somehow what happened can and should be erased from individual and collective memories. But putting it on a shelf suggests relegating it to to an appropriate spot, not out front, but appropriately stored along with every other piece of the congregation's history or resources so it will not be erased and elders, leaders, and members may in the future refer to lessons learned. I like that. You see, she's reframing. What does it mean to put something on the shelf? All right. Now, I have several books in my library, and many of them are on the shelf, right? But that doesn't mean I've discarded it or I'm not going to go back to it. It means I know what's there. And I have a collection of learnings in this book, a collection of learnings from this book. And when I face a situation, I've processed it well enough that I can go back to that section of the shelf, pull out that book, and there it is. That's what she says. And it, it's a reframing of the idea of putting something up on the shelf. It's for her, it's a kind of archival system. You know, most of us have computers where we have intricate filing systems. I have a Google Drive, a lot of you probably have a Google Drive. I've got a very intricate filing system. In that where I know how to go and do, uh, get things that I need. It's all archived right there. Well, it's on the shelf, but that doesn't mean it's dead. It's live. It's a very live set of documents that we can draw from when we need to. She continues. She says, none of us really forgets, and it's doubtful that we really forgive, without fully examining and processing an issue. She says, succumbing to the counsel of forgive and forget may simply bury resentment and grudges a layer or two deeper because participants have not healed sufficiently to truly forgive and forget. She says, and this is a key set, these next two paragraphs are really key for her. She says, when an issue has not been adequately processed, it remains as the proverbial elephant in the living room that everyone knows is there but pretends it is not. Unfortunately, it takes up a lot of space and folks have to walk around it. And what is worse is when newcomers unwittingly stumble upon it and are confused that no one acknowledged its presence before. So perceptive newer members see it and they bump into this elephant. And they're saying, hey guys, you you got an elephant in your room? They say, shh. We don't talk about that. We don't go there. The need is for everyone involved to accept responsibility for their contributions, confess sin, and repent. Failure to confess group sin can lead to blaming the unforgiving victim as uncooperative or divisive. Now, do you see how that is? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been hurt really, really deeply? Knowing something needed to be processed, knowing that you were a contributor, yes, but fundamentally you were a victim, right? And the more you asked to deal with it, the more you became the troublemaker. That's what she's talking about here. She said there are two problems with this. Next paragraph there. First, those who fail to repent are likely to repeat offenses because they've never really faced up to their problematic behavior. And second, it re-victimizes the victims. First, by being wounded from someone's inappropriate behavior and then by feeling guilty that they cannot just erase the wound from their memories. It's as if we say to them, your continued pain is your fault. Get over it. Dealing with problems in this way is like covering up a wound too quickly without cleansing it thoroughly. Infection sets in, spreads throughout the congregation. Wounds sometimes must be open and cleansed or they will heal incompletely and cause more damage than what they would originally. If an emotional wound is covered too quickly without deep soul searching, repentance or grief work, infection will set in and lead to bitterness and depression and physical disease and violence or other related problems. Another way of saying that is hurt churches hurt churches. They hurt people. Now, I can relate to this. I had an experience with a church once that was was so incredibly painful that even when I think about it now, I can tear up if I'm not. I'm not careful, I can tear up when I think about it. And the, the difficulty comes in that the persons involved in it wanted so badly to just be able to say to me, I'm sorry for what I did. And do you know what my next question was? What did you do? Help me understand what you did. Please acknowledge to me what you did so I know that you really understand what brought this about. And as you do that and I do that, we can move forward here. But I think our inability to deal with that then has affected the ministry of every person who was involved from that day forward. Are you with me there? And there's the lack of desire to even go back and to be able to deal with that effectively. I've experienced this. And it's painful. It's it stays with you, it never leaves you. It really is like an emotional and spiritual ball and chain that you just take with you wherever you go. Uh, or, or, or at the worst, uh, any of you familiar with the sport called rucking today? The idea is that, you know, uh, in military training, that part of what you have to do is put a 50-pound rucksack on your back and go and run or walk with it. And so there's now a sport called rucking, where you put a 30- or 40-pound rucksack on your back and walk for 15 minutes and you get the same effect as if you didn't have the rucksack on your back for 45 minutes. You see where I'm coming from? All right. There are a whole lot of ministers, elders, church workers who've been rucksacking for years and years and years because of this kind of thing. right? right? They've been carrying that on their backs. So how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? Well, in the next ten minutes, let me solve that for you. (laughs) She says, number one, unpack the issues. Just like when we unpack a box or a suitcase, we take out each item, look at it, and consider where we want to put it. We can unpack the complex issues of a conflict. For example, suppose there's a conflict between the elders and the ministers. When we unpack it, we may discover that in the minister's meetings, the minister made allegations about the elders in their absence, we might immediately use this discovery to develop a policy that no member of the leadership team will be subjected to allegations in their absence. Boom. Bingo. See? What you've done there is you've stored the item on the shelf by drafting a new procedure for honest, direct, and redemptive confrontation. You see that? That's what she means. You go back, unpack it, and you find out, yeah, this has happened. Well, how are we going to keep that from happening again? How are, we going to arch- how are we going to put that on the shelf? How are we going to archive that? I'll give you an- another case in point. Church has a beloved minister who is discovered as having a serious porn issue. Okay? Um, the way it's dealt with, however, is that once it all got out and it ended up that the minister had to leave, then the elders cordoned off the issue. It could not be talked about. They just cordoned it off and said, we're putting that behind us, we're moving on, we are not going to deal with that issue. In fact, here's what's going to be preached on for the next full year. Okay? Now, that was an anxious effort on their part to move on. Okay? But it was also an effort to prematurely salve the pain. And part of the difficulty came in. We never were, were really able to learn from what happened. Could you perhaps have put measures in place relative to ministerial ethics? Could the ministers have come together at that point and put together a brief ministerial ethics statement? Could there have been some system of computer use accountability, such as you find in most corporate context? i you know, I know when I sign on at the Harding University computer System that if anybody wanted to, they could look and see wherever I go there. i I doubt anybody I know everybody's jobs, and I doubt anybody really wants to do that, you know, but in fact, I was working at another university not long ago uh, where um, you know the students were concerned that, you know, some of the administrators were following the, and one of the administrators stood up and said, do you really think we have the time to be doing all of that? about you know, you know, So I, I doubt it happens, but I know it could. There's some degree of accountability there. Couldn't this church have done a little bit of that? Could, could it have done what it could to deal with that issue and give the church relative assurance, we've learned from this? Are you following me there? Now, could you also go back to a long issue that happened some time ago and say, what do we learn from this? Are are there measures that could potentially be put in place? And see, so she's saying, unpack it. Take out individual items one by one, and as you do, you think about, what do we need to learn from that? She says, on the next level, you begin by looking at the specific accusations themselves. If the ministers did act inappropriately, they now have an opportunity to apologize, be forgiven, and make sure the action is not repeated. If they were not guilty, that can be cleared, too. What is put on the shelf here is the truth. If an an inaccurate gossip about this issue crops up in the future, we can go back to the shelf and retrieve the truth. That's, That's what she's talking about here. She says, when we unpack issues in this manner, we do not erase memories, we reframe them. The issue is not forgetting, but deciding what we will remember, and to remember it appropriately. We remember truth, not falsehood, forgiveness, not grudge, reconciliation, not bitterness. And then she says, number two, hold things more lightly. And she talks here about closure. She said closure is a popular term these days, and in its common use, it means persons who have experienced misfortune or pain must move on and achieve complete closure. But many helpers, however, struggle with the concept of closure. On the one hand, is a legitimate need not to remain in a perpetual state wallowing and wound licking. That behavior gets us stuck in our pain. On the other hand, is the reality that we can never really achieve the kind of closure that erases a painful experience from memory. You ever try to do that? I don't. You know, there's some things where I have really good forgetters. I'm not great with names. I'll just be honest, I'm not. I'm really bad with names. I have a great forgetter when it comes to names. But, you know, I'm like most people. You hurt me deeply or hurt somebody I love deeply. I don't have a very good forgetter. Okay, now I can can put it behind me, but I can't forget it. So I need some way of being able to process the pain so that the pain that I carry with me, which I'm going to carry the pain, right? It's not like I'm not going to carry the pain. I've just got to learn how to carry the pain better, right? But if I process it, then I'm able to carry the pain more redemptively and less disruptively. It it's sort of—it's like it lightens my rucksack, right? It—it—it it, it, it lightens it, and I don't have as heavy a load to carry with me. It's lighter. I can handle it better. It's—it's it's not as restrictive around me. And she says in that respect, she said, what makes more sense is to hold things more lightly. And I love this analogy. Imagine an incident is an irregular-sized rock in my hand. Closure suggests that I must put it on my palm and close my hand tightly with fingers curled into my palm around the rock so that it is no longer visible. She says if I do this, the more I try to close my hand around the rock, its irregular edges will cut and rub against me, perhaps even wounding my hand. The other option, however, is for me to simply hold the rock more lightly in an open palm where I can see it for what it is, look at it in all of its dimensions and textures, caress it, etc., It may still be some degree of burden, but it will no longer be a source of unseen pain. There's a lot of healthy stuff there. There's a lot of healthy stuff there. Um, A next thing that she talks about is clearing the decks. I want to spend a little time on that. I've got about four minutes. Let me spend a little time on that because it relates directly to this idea of unpacking uh, the issues. She says, "...a recurring problem is when old battles are brought into new controversies, resulting in neither the old fight nor the new one getting resolved." Irrelevant issues are injected into deliberations. Bystanders who knew nothing of the old conflicts are clueless and confused at the strange tension, and those who knew about them are either stuck in them or care nothing about them. And members come to meetings consumed by old grudges and through various means of emotional subterfuge, vengefully influence current decisions toward getting even with the persons whom they perceive have wronged them. These past wrongs are totally unrelated to the issue at hand, And furthermore, it's not the good of the congregation that forms the criterion as to the best outcome, but the sweet revenge of the unforgiving. So how do you do this? Number one, challenge inaccurate histories. In other words, you, you, you go back and you actually unpack the baggage again. You go back and you unpack. You challenge inaccurate histories of what happened. You get factual history. Now, Again, this is one of those times when you're saying, well, how do you do that? I have to admit, honestly, guys, about the only way to do that, if the issue is really hot, you've got to bring somebody in from the outside. Okay, so that's another way for me to say, be careful about going and just thinking you can do this at your church, because generally speaking, you're going to need a a disaffected third party to be doing something like that, You know, going in and challenging the inaccurate histories. But then... Number two, you discover the common story. Now, here's what she means by that. Not everything is going to be remembered correctly, and not everything is going to be remembered, right? But what you do is you take the information that can be collected, and you say, this is what we know, and this is what we don't. And that becomes the common story. This is what we remember from the event. This is what actually happened insofar as we can remember. But here are some things that there's some gaps that would still have to be filled for us to say, that we have that, but that becomes the common story at hand, and everyone acknowledges that that's the story. Uh, that this is the truth, in as, in as well as we can reconstruct it, it's the truth as we all perceive it. Okay, and then number three, get keep focused. She said, insist that the current discussion remain focused on the issues at hand, that the substance of the debates be accurately recorded. If serious unrelated side disputes surface, do not ignore them, but schedule appropriate opportunities to deal with them in a little bit later. She says number four, stick to factual recordings of minutes when this kinds of thing is being dealt with, and construct an accurate congregational history timeline uh, to where you actually have an archival there that, that, that an archive of congregational memories that becomes really, really important. Uh, that, that, that can be so helpful. And all of that relates to number five, which is sort of what we've been leading to, of exercising the ghost, right? Now, notice the word that's being used there is not exercise, it's exorcise. We're talking about casting out the ghost, really, you know. And she uses that metaphor in a way of saying this is what's involved in the idea of dealing with congregational ghosts. All right. Well, guys, gals, I hope this has been helpful. I really do. I hope it has been helpful. And and again, please don't go from this presentation and say, Gupton gave us a one, two, three, four, five surefire way of dealing with ghosts in the church. If you do that, I will come haunt you. (laughs) I will be a ghost. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, don't do that. But, at, at the very least, what this hopefully does is it helps you to know there are pathways. There are pathways through this kind of thing, and and if you find you're dealing with it and it's and it's really hurting you, I would encourage you first if you need a good resource, pick up the book by Denise Goodman, Congregational Fitness, walk through it, look at it uh, really carefully, and there's some other text that I, I could recommend, and then you know compile the learnings from those. Documents, bring in a, a therapist or someone who is relatively local to you but consult sometimes with organizations along these lines. And if it's serious enough to be dealt with, let them walk you through some exercises to unpack this kind of thing. Uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do it, but it does take... I mean, being rocket scientist is a great thing. I, I have to be careful there because one time I said that and I had a rocket scientist sitting in my classroom and didn't know it. It's kind of like one time when I talked about... <clears throat> how that becoming an elder is like moving from the rose garden to the sewage treatment plant of your church. And I had a chemical engineer sitting in the room who said, who happened to be the CEO of a major utility. And he looked at me and said, sewage treatment is a very fine thing. And I thought, okay, all right. (laughs) So he reminded me of that. But what I'm saying is, it's not something that requires you it requires this massive collective intelligence, but it does require a great deal of care to make sure that it's done well and that you don't actually do more harm by going there than, than good because you don't want to create more trouble with it. But hopefully you leave here at least with some hope in knowing there is a path. There is a path. Okay, great. You see here, I, I got through all this and I never had to bring up my Ouija board. You know, I just, Okay. Some of you caught the humor in that. That was supposed to be funny. Again, I'm underscoring. It started funny, and it's supposed to end funny. All right, good. All right, thanks, guys.
1: The crew that organizes said they'd give me two minutes to make an announcement here really quick, and I I just wanted to thank uh, Carlos. Really quickly for exercising all the demons from our community here. This is awesome. I feel the, the the levity in my shoulders. That's great. Go forth and do likewise, right? There we are. Now, there's My name is Chris, and I'm the preaching minister here at the Belgrade Church of Christ. And um, I just wanted to, um, to to throw something out here because I have a, a greater group of um, people from the north central states, uh, from their church leaders gathered together. I don't think there is is one that's larger than this. And so at the community here in our, in the church we have we're surrounded by if you know anything about the Gallatin Valley it was listed as one of the largest growing communities of its size in the United States it's just exploding with growth there's new subdivisions going up all over the place and which is a great thing for the church because there's people that are coming in that are landing that are part of things here and uh, so we're we're blessed with with all sorts of the community's changing the church is changing all sorts of stuff and uh, in some really uh, really quick ways uh, that's that's sometimes hard to get a handle on but the great thing for us is as a church we're at a spot right now that we are what we are until we're able to hire additional staff and so over the last while, the elders and, and the church, we've walked along this process ourselves, is we're in the process of wanting to hire a family life minister, uh, someone that would be like a Barnabas of the situation, uh, would would do some teaching, but mostly encouraging, mentoring, growing spiritually people, uh, working with families, that sort of thing. And uh, we're, we're ready to go on it. We had a guy here all this last week that uh, we're trying to, we're not talking in terms of position, we're talking in terms of calling, and... And trying to figure out, as we pray through this, someone that's got very deeply in their heart the desire to just be a great spiritual influence on other people. And, um, and so if that's, if that's something that, that pricks your heart a bit or you know someone and think, Oh, man, I know, some, I know just the person. Talk to me. I'll be around here uh, tonight and tomorrow. And um, we'll, we'll go from there and see, see what God has in mind. Thank you very much.